Hey, local listeners, this is your host, Rob Kohansky. Welcome to another episode of Local First Podcast, where each week I interview local business owners, entrepreneurs, and community leaders. What we do is we share their story of success and challenges and their journey and how they became a community leader. I truly believe that behind every small business is a story that needs to be shared. I want to put a big thank you to my sponsors, Exacta Corporation, Think Possibilities, Think Exacta. Rare leaders, connect, collaborate, contribute. Where leaders come to thrive and grow. Make sure that you subscribe so you don't miss an episode, as well as always love your feedback. Enjoy the show. Welcome, Scott. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. Doing good. Awesome. Awesome. That's great. So uh, you're located out in California right now? Yeah, Southern California. Um, So we're based in the city of Long Beach, which is at the very south end of L.A. County, right north of Orange County. So really at the L.A. Orange County borders. Are are the uh, forest fires affecting you guys at all? You're just too much in the city. You know, um, a little bit in the in the like air quality standpoint. Um, You know, we're like right on the coast in the city. You know, proper, and most of the fires that are burning in Southern California would be in the hills. So if you think the ring of you know mountains and hills that surround the LA basin, that's where it would be predominantly, and then you know, obviously further out. That's good. Um, So yeah, but it's been, uh, gosh, it's been like wild, crazy. And, you know, I think there's, you know, I don't know how much of it's actually natural and some of it's man-made, right? Um, But, uh, you know, clearly we're we're adding, uh, you know, like, you know, very significant forest fires to the earthquake and uh, mudslide story in California. (laughs) Is that, is that anything, you know, happening to you guys are getting a lot of rain out there now, aren't you? Well, not yet. Usually it starts coming in October. Um, but what happens is that, you know, we'll have the fires, it'll burn all that, you know, tree in the brush, which, you know, in a way is the right thing, the natural thing to happen. In fact, you know, big story in California is like we overmanaged fire suppression and built up all kinds of fuel, but then it, it clears the hillsides and then the rain comes and then it turns into, you know, mudslides Mudslides, and then, and then you throw an earthquake in there every once in a while. (laughs) (laughs) So it's, uh, you know, anyways, uh, you know, compared to hurricanes and tornadoes, you know, sort of a debate of, you know, the Midwest versus the West coast and, you know, that kind of thing. So, but we're, we're okay. So, you know, appreciate it. Before we get into the nuts and bolts about what you do, um, you know, tell us a little bit about your background. And, you know, and I know you've got a kind of an interesting story, how you got involved with all this. Why don't you share that with the audience? Sure, sure. So, you know, ultimately, if I sort of look, you know, back into history and, you know, why did I choose this career? Really, you know, my, my family was in the real estate development business. So that was my Uncle Mike and my dad, Kerry. Uh, we're both developers in their own right. <clears throat> so I had the, the great you know, um, opportunity to, to be around that and grow up around that. Although I, I sort of make the joke that, you know, as a kid, it was, you know, sort of what I didn't want to do because, you know, that's what my parents did. Right. Um, and then I got out of high school and, and didn't really have a, a particular direction I was going to head. Um, didn't have specific plans to go to college. Um, so I ended up working in the, in the uh, uh, construction trades for about uh, two years, let's say, give or take two years. And I was working in the electrical trades. 
And that was sort of like a default, right? Or, you know, hey, what are you going to do? You got to earn money. And, you know, and this was in the day and age, Rob, you probably remember. It's like when you turned 18, you actually left home and like went out on your own. And I don't, you know, it's like not, not right or wrong. That's just what we did in those days. So it was like launch, <laughs> right? In fact, I remember packing my stuff up into my car, uh, which my dad had been so kind to buy me. It was a Volkswagen bus. And I just, I scooted. In fact, I remember years later, he's like, yeah, I, they didn't call you, but you know, you never told me you were leaving. Just, I came home one day and you were gone. So I've uh, <laughs> never told that story before, by the way. Uh, but I worked in the construction trade for about two years and, and a couple like key events uh, took place in that time period. Um, in the construction trades, you know, good, honorable, you know, salt of the earth people and that. But I've, like realized for me, like that wasn't going to be what I was going to be happy and satisfied with long-term. I, I needed like greater challenges and, you know, doing ding bad electrical and new construction apartments, you know, over and over and over again. Although elect the electrical trade is like, you know, one of the most sophisticated, you know, knowledge and, and, and mentally like, you know, what you need to know to be productive in that space was at a higher level. It just, it wasn't going to be for me. And plus, you know, look, I was working with people that were 40 and 50 years old, Rob, and they were like beat up, right? It was like, you could tell like the, the, the business was going to take its toll on your body, right? Knees yeah. and back and, you know, that kind of thing. And, and then while I was working on, and I worked in new construction electrical, so I just did apartment, like ding bad apartments is what I call it. Just, you know, just plain Jane, middle of the road. This is in the mid eighties. I remember uh, the developer of those projects. I didn't work on any projects. Uh, I think I worked on one project that was a family project apartment, but you know, I would see other developers and I was like, ah, oh, this dude this is who I want to be. And I sort of knew who that person was from my family background, but driving the nice car gets to wear the, the suit, you know, the days when you actually wanted to wear a suit and, you know, whatever, you know, commanding presence, you know, directing people do this, do that. And like, because I had the background, I was like, okay, this is like, I see this, right. I, I want to be that guy. And then the other one was, I read, you know, I've just been a, a, you know, heavy reader my, my entire life. And, and at the time I was reading a series of books in the real estate space, sort of in the genre of, you know, how to invest on weekends and make a million bucks in real estate, you know, that kind of, that kind of book. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, that, yeah. And that was key for me because it really opened my eyes about deal making. Right. Like I knew what my family did, but I didn't work in the business, you know, at that young age. Um, and it, and that really opened my eyes about, okay, this is how you produce value and profits and money and, and the sort of the numbers you could like make in real estate. And it was an eye opener for me. Um, and so that was really those two events really were, were, were guiding events for me to go, okay, I need to be in the real estate development space. I want to be a deal maker. I want to, you know, I didn't call it be an entrepreneur at the time. That was, you know, what I was really meaning, you know, to work for myself. And so it was at that point in time, I go, okay, here's what I got to do. Laid out a plan. I need to go to college and get a degree. I ended up getting a finance degree, you know, business degree from uh, uh, Cal Poly San Francisco here in Southern in, uh, California, not Southern California, but in California. And really just mapped out my career from that standpoint, including, you know, what was going to be my first job, which I ended up getting, you know, that job that I aspired to, you know, even, you know, a couple of years before I actually left college, but that was to basically work for others in the real estate development domain, you know, professionally, 
um, you know, met people I met through my family, but not working for my family um, in order to get trained in the, the business and, you know, the knowledge of being a real estate developer. Wow. And now here you are. <laughs> yeah, but, right. You know, 30, I, I, yeah. I love what you said there is, you know, when you said you were turn 18, I, I was the same way. Um, I pretty much was uh, booted out the house. So it's a very similar situation. <laughs> and it was just like, and you know, and, and that was, you know, that's the way it was back then. And yeah, and yeah. I appreciate that. because Yeah, right. It was unthinkable that you would stay around, right? It wasn't yeah. even a like, and, and you know, I, I had I wanted to stay on, I'm sure my, I was living with my dad at the time. My parents were split up. Um, but I didn't even think that, right? Like it was like, it was, you know, hey, you turn 18, it's time to go. Yeah, it really was. I mean, you might not know what the heck you were going to do to like make a living. I mean, you went and did what you did. So I, I, you know, and I, and I appreciate that, right. As you probably do, right. Yeah, most definitely. Cause you grew up really fast, you know, knowing what you, what you wanted and what you had to do. And they, they programmed me from a, you know, a pretty young age from being a teenager going, okay, by the time you turn 18, you're going to be either out of the house or in college or, you know, that was pretty much it. And I knew I wasn't going to college at that particular time. So you know, I appreciate that. And I, I did this, I did the same thing with my daughter and, mm-hmm. and she went to college and I told her first year back for, uh, uh her summer break. I said, don't come home without a job. Mm-hmm. I said, you're not <laughs> sitting on your ass all yeah. summer. And this is after, after college, like, so post, you know, post graduation meeting. Yeah. And, it, and yeah. she just, uh, uh, this was while her her freshman year. Oh, oh, I see. For the summer, yeah, yeah, yeah. I got you. Yeah, which is great. Year. You know, I, I don't. I think that's missing in in today's environment. And you know, I, like I like my wife and I have like you know we didn't anticipate this, but I have a nineteen, a sixteen, and a thirteen year old. So we're in this story. Our oldest is a sophomore in college. About like what do we plan on? You know, having this conversation with our kids, which we have, and we basically said, look, you've got a place, um, but you got to you know, you got to be productive. I didn't put it so just, you know, succinctly as you did, but, you know, actually my oldest got a job and, you know, and, and, you know, he's, he's managing that. Um, although we've always said, Hey, your studies come first, you know, learning, networking in college, you know, like you got to come out of college with really my main push is, you know, expand your network as much as you can Yes, get the degree. Yes, learn what you're going to learn in college. But in the long run, it's the people you know and meet and and you help them and they help you in the long run, you know, scheme of like, you know, building your career and, and you know, uh, getting into your own business if that's what you're going to choose. That's way more important than, you know, what you'll actually learn in college. Yeah, that's to awesome. me. That's cool. So let's get a little bit about what you do down there. And there's, there's a few little things in here. And if I'm missing something, feel free to jump in. Um, Cause you are sure. the expert in this. I love the, I, I was really excited about to have you on, on the show. Um, and, you know, uh, you know, being here is that, that I, I've been in real estate for probably the last 10 years, not at your level. I mean, I'm just flipping houses and wholesaling and, mm-hmm. you know, that's my wholesaling right now is my side, my little side also, which I, I enjoy doing, mm-hmm. you know, that's good. You know, it's, yeah, and I, I enjoy it, you know, just bringing people, like he's bringing people together, you know, explain a little bit about what you do with, you know, the workforce, you know, rental housing communities and, and 
explain a bit to the audience. So what is that all about and how did you develop that? Yeah, thank you for that's a great question. So, I mean, you know, fundamentally we're, we're a real estate development company. So, you know, for those in your audience, I mean, you know what it is, but just for everybody, it's, you know, we find land opportunities, be it empty, vacant land, or maybe underutilized, you know, small old house on a big lot, you know, is how I put it. And we basically design a building in the model that we think is the appropriate, you know, market, you know, market meeting product, um, build the building, you know, collect all the team members to manage them. So architects, civil engineers, you know, all the all the vendors that are necessary to design and facilitate the construction on a new building. And then at the end of the day, when we're done with it, we lease it up, right? And and we either sell it or more often these days, we're going to hold it, you know, as a rental, you know, producing rental housing asset. And that differentiates from, you know, buying existing value add where, you know, you're going to go find an existing asset, buy it, maybe upgrade the units and raise the rents. Uh, in fact, I describe real estate development as the ultimate value add, right? Because we're taking an empty piece of land and adding value through a new building, but we still are, you know, it's the same purpose, which is to produce, you know, more income than when you started the project, right? For us, it's going from zero income because we got empty land to, you know, whatever the maximal income that we can produce in it. Um, workforce. So traditionally over the years, so I started uh, Urban Pacific now 20 years ago. In fact, last this past March was our 20th year of operations. This was, uh, you know, 2000, literally year 2000. And, uh, you know, I came out of like a couple of, you know, very significant companies in Southern California, got great background in the real estate development business. But at the time in 2000, you know, when it, when it was like, I decided it was time to, you know, go out on my own. It was like, what do you do? Like, what's the business? Yes, it's real estate development. Yes, we find land and we design it and build buildings and rent them, that kind of thing. But like, I've always been naturally somebody who wanted to compete in uncommon ways, right? Like to go do what everybody else doing just seemed to me not that like, I just didn't like, that didn't make sense to me, right? I go, I got to be differentiated, uncommon, maybe call it contrarian, depending. And so at the time um, we decided, I decided that we would uh, pursue what we call urban infill, which is basically, you know, in, in the fabric of an existing city, let's say it's, you know, LA or Long Beach or Orange County, and you're going to look for lots that are already in built-out neighborhoods, but that are empty or underutilized, right? And then build in in on those empty lots and basically produce new housing in filling a vacant parcel in an existing neighborhood. And that's really been our our you know our our focus really since day one. And that t- has taken different forms, of course, because it's not all the same product. Meaning, how dense is it? How tall is it? How it you know how, what type of unit? Um, and then about three and a half years ago, um, really like late 2016, early 2017, you know, we were recovering from the recession, you know, still even then, right. Um, you know, from the 08 recession. And it was at the time that there's a huge uptick in, in deal flow and new projects that were in the pipeline to produce new apartment units, like in LA and Long Beach, Orange County. And we had done successfully, you know, a a handful of projects between around 2011 to 2016, 
bought, you know, distressed land, delivered units early, did really well, set some, you know, some pricing benchmarks in the markets that we were building and selling in because the market was still recovering. But in 2016, 2017, you could like observing the market, you could see a huge wave of new housing projects coming online. Like, you know, all the big boys, you know, the Trammell Crows and the you know, Holland Partners and those guys, all the national apartment builders were all like, you know, descending on Southern California. And it was at that point in time, we finished some deals, did well. And we go, do we want to try to compete in that space with all these big boys that are coming into the marketplace? And my answer just traditionally, and at that point was no, let's look for something different. So one of the companies I work for in, you know, when I first came into the business was a, a subsidiary of a company called Coffin and Broad which is a big home building shop. People now know as KB Home. And I work for a division of theirs that built affordable new construction apartment buildings using something called the low-income housing tax credit program. Basically, it's affordable housing, right, in the truest sense. And from that um, time working with those guys, we built a lot of family housing. So it was affordable housing that, that served large families and like three and four bedroom uh, units. And when I looked at the totality of, you know, all the different projects we built when I was there and all the people that serve from, you know, singles, and young couples, all the way to these big families, sometimes seniors, to me, it always appeared that the family units were always in the highest demand, right? Like, you know, they would, you know, be, you know, you'd have a four bedroom unit and maybe had five or 10% of your project of hundred units that were this size of units, but they always had massive amounts of applications, right? which meant to me, like my signal was that I read was, there's a lot of families that need this housing. So in 2016, 2017, when we start to look for a different product, like I have that in my background, I go, oh, you know, these families, like they're, a, they're an underserved part of the community. But I also knew from my days doing affordable housing that affordable housing also is a very competitive business, right? Government subsidy dollars are always heavily competed for, they're finite, and there always is never enough to serve all the families that need the housing with the government subsidy. You run out of the subsidy long before you can produce the enough units to satisfy that undersupply. And so I came up with the idea of let's look at a middle income or workforce housing model that, that serves basically working class middle income families so they can pay enough rent where we can use standard equity and debt but we're serving a part of the market that needs, you know, an attainable housing product, meaning they need something more affordable and more coherent than what they're getting in the marketplace. And we basically settled on this workforce housing model that we ultimately ended up naming urban townhouse or UTH just to, you know, make it a specific product type. And that's a five bedroom, four bath townhouse rental product, right? So it's not, we never sell the units, you know, we hold them, you know, in perpetuity as, as I said earlier, but it serves a, you know, working class family and it is specifically family. Our family, you know, profile is anywhere between four to eight people. Um, usually it'd be mom and dad, adult kids, grandparents, in-laws, right? And with this five bedroom product, we're able to serve these families coherently. And because they share incomes and expenses naturally in these family groups, usually there's multiple earners, maybe between two and five earners in a household, depending on how big it is, they naturally economic share, right? So they share incomes and expenses across the family group. So I'll, I'll stop there. But basically the whole point was to basically serve this middle income workforce housing family group with a housing product that was coherent with their lifestyle, was undersupplied, 
was stable because of multiple earners. And ultimately as a developer, we have to provide yield to our investors, right? We compete in the marketplace for equity to raise capital from investors, which we do, you know, consistently and have over time to have that be a satisfactory return where people go, oh, this is a great product. One, it's a good, you know, it has a social, you know, benefit characteristics serving families, but it's a stable undersupplied space and it produces yield, right? That our intention was to sort of collect all these, you know, benefits in, in one product type. And we, you know, you know, it didn't start off all with all those factors, but I knew that market was undersupplied. Could we fulfill a need in it? And this is sort of how we landed on the UTH concept. Wow. That was a mouthful. That's all right though. Cause I like, I'm just taking it all in, you know, you know, that was a lot to go through. And, you know, when you got started up for this, you know, just like, I'm going to take this like in two directions here, one on, on your development side. And then the other one on the, on the family side of things mm-hmm. is that when you look at it, you know, what were some of the challenges getting to that point from, okay, you know, I'm, I'm going to, you know, build this, you know, this nice, you know, this, this, this nice house for this family. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, how, what were the challenges for some of those families to actually, you know, realize that, you know, this is a good product for me and my family to live into. So, you know, many challenges, but that's real estate development. I mean, real right. estate development is a, you know, it's a complicated business and, you know, not to over oversell or undersell the complexity of it, but that's just the reality of it. Right. Right. And so as we go into it, you know, one, one of the things that I, when I came into creating the UTH model in this, you know, 2016, 2017 era, I really brought a lot of lessons from the 2008 recession with me. And I, you know, of course I've been utilizing these lessons, you know, you know, from, you know, 2010, 2011, when the market started to recover enough to do development deals. But when we, when we, as a company came upon the idea of UTH and, and, and thought it was a viable product, we, we then had to test it. And one of the things I really learned from 2008 was that if you're going to do something new or different or something uncommon, untested, in my mind, um, it was going to be a better risk mitigation move to start small or medium size in the number of projects and the size of the projects such that we could test the model, right? Like let's experiment. It is an experiment, right? right. It's a totally untested marketplace. I mean, nobody does five bedroom four baths, Rob. I mean, like I talk to people and <laughs> you know, they're either like, wow, that sounds great. Or they're like, holy cow, that's the scariest thing I've ever seen, right? Um, so what we did basically, we, we created the, what's called the demonstration phase. That's what I call it, which was four projects that were the beginning of the UTH model and they were small and they were close to home with the logic that if they failed, that it wouldn't like take us out of play. Like we wouldn't like kill the company and, you know, go out of business. Right. I, I wasn't willing to risk the, you know, the, the, what we built over those many years uh, on an experiment gone wrong. So we said, Hey, look, we bought land really well, like, you know, great discount. Uh, we, we bought it close to home. And really the idea came with the demonstration phase was to test three things, right? These are the major factors that we didn't have clear answers to. We had some background research and, and a lot of historical knowledge of the marketplace and, and our capabilities as a developer, but it basically came down to three things. One is, can we rent the units for what we project, right? Five bedroom, four bath, like well, there aren't co- comparables in the marketplace. I mean, houses were the closest comp, right? Rental houses. Two is, could we build it for what we projected, right? Uh, we've always built, well, sorry, I shouldn't say always. We have since 2005 been a, a builder of our own projects in-house. 
like a home builder does. You know, we have staff, superintendents, project managers. We go by subcontract, you know, contract work, trade partners. You know, we do we do have a GC license, but we don't act as a GC in the traditional capacity. We're like owner builder, maybe is the way to say it. Could we, so second question is, could we build it for what we projected and feasibly and make money with it? And then the third, which was really to me the most important and anybody who's in the value add space will recognize this, is what's the value of the project when it's completed and leased up, right? And what is it either we refi, what's the value under appraisal in a refi, or when we sell it, is it produce enough profitability, you know, uh, like the revenue over cost, is a positive number and it's positive enough for us to make money and, and you know, produce good yields to investors. And so the demonstration phase was four projects to test that. And we went through in a series, you know, like each project sort of started. And then, you know, a few months later, the next project was start and we had learned some lessons from the first one that we carried to the second one and then so forth, so on and so forth. And we're actually now complete with that demonstration phase and have really proven the model. Like we've built systems, we put practices in place, we built a team that's now a seasoned, you know, in-house builder. Um, we've got project management staff. Uh, we just brought a, a team lead on, on property management in-house that will oversee asset management for big projects, third-party property managers when we hire those, and then small projects will manage in-house. And so that was the whole phase to experiment, to test the model, to build the systems, to build the team and, and get the team that was already with us more seasoned in that specific, like specialized, um, you know, area. And so now today we arrive at, you know, we're several projects into now what I call the production phase, which is having more projects and bigger projects because small projects are inefficient. You know, you get them too small. There's just not the efficiency of, you know, any, any particular variable that you would have on bigger projects. And so that's where we find us today. So I know that answered your first question. Let me make sure I'm taking care of your second question. Yeah. It was just about, you know, what were the challenges for the families, families at that time, which mm -hmm. drew them to these, this type of uh, uh, a home. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and, and thank you for asking it. So, because of that background I described, we knew there was demand for family housing, right? And if you look at the marketplace generally of like most major urban metros today and going back, you know, several years, most of the developers who are in the multifamily construction space are doing, you know, studio and one bedroom yeah. units, maybe a little bit of two bedroom, and they're serving a specific demographic, which is millennial and Gen Z, depending on where they're in their life cycle, right? Completely appropriate. And in fact, in 2016, when we finished that, that group of projects, that was the product we did, right? You know, downtown Long Beach, downtown LA, you know, sexy, you know, studio unit for the single earner, young person, completely appropriate marketplace to serve. But I also saw because there was a lot of competition in that space, when the recession came, when a recession came, and, and, and employment was changed, that single earner household was going to be vulnerable, right? They lost their job. And to me, they go that the, if you're a young person and you move to Long Beach to get your first job and then your job changes, well, you're out of there. And I don't, and it's completely right. Like you should, that's the right thing for you to do. Maybe move home, maybe you move in with roommates. I mean, you're going to make some move to, to make it through the recession to keep your costs down and, and, you know, find a new job and, you know, people will take care of themselves ultimately, but you, you need to shift your housing situation in the interim, right? So we started focusing on these families knowing that because they had these multi-earner multi household structures, 
that any one person losing their job wasn't going to sink the family in their capability to afford to pay the rent. And because they economically share income and expenses across the family group, there's a more sustainable, stable model for the family to to maintain, right? In fact, if you look at the poverty rates of multi-generational households, the poverty rates are much less. And and although many people wouldn't prefer it, right? They go, oh, I wanna, you know, I'm, I'm 22 years old, I wanna move out, but the economics, the economic reality of it, you know, compels them in some cases, or they make their own choice to, I'm gonna share with my family and it's not preferable, but I'm gonna live a better life. I can, you know, the job that I am at, is going to pay for more things. Maybe I can get a car. I can, you know, I can be more patient in my career, whatever. Um, so having get all that background, what we found is that uh, families that are renters that are of this avatar that we describe, you know, large family renters. It's interesting. I always said in the early days of UTH, I, I told our leasing teams, like I go, look, we compete with houses. And so any family that had their choice, all other things being equal, would always choose the house. Like, why wouldn't they? They have a you know front yard, they have a backyard, white picket fence. It's the American dream, although it's a rental structure, right? But it's interesting as we've leased a lot of these units and we're actually in lease up, you know, and some projects now here in Orange County and soon in LA County. Um, the, the, the families who rent, they think of themselves as renters. They don't consider a house. I mean, it's not, and I'm generalizing, right? It's not like no family ever thinks of a house, but they really think of themselves when they approach, they go, Hey, I saw your five bedroom unit on Zillow or apartments.com or wherever I saw the banner. Like we've never heard of five bedroom units before. Like we didn't even know that existed. Like that's a common narrative that they're in, right? And that's, I'm glad because I know that shows up for them. And so what they finally determine is now that there's a unit available for them where they could have their grandparent move in or their in-laws or kids can move home. Like we're talking to a family right now on our project in Fullerton. It's a, it's a couple who got married, remarried. And, you know, the mom brings, you know, two kids and the dad brings two kids and they're in two households. And so they toured around and they're like, wow, we didn't know that we could rent this. Like we didn't, again, know this existed. And so that's, you know, one anecdotal example of it. Um, but I think the you know, uh, when the families see it, I guess to answer your question, Rob, they immediately recognize the opportunity. They're like, wow. Uh, so five bedrooms, four bathrooms, two-car direct access, private garage, laundry room in the unit, air conditioning. Most of the families that move into our units don't have a garage, right? If you live in a standard apartment building, you don't have a garage. I mean, when I rented apartments, I never did like a garage. Like, what the heck is that, right? And so we're providing a value of the size of the unit bedroom count plus bathrooms, right? Having four bathrooms in a five bedroom unit is actually pretty key, you know, amenity, if you will. But virtually all the families who move in have never had this. Like they didn't never had a laundry room in their unit, right? That's like cool, right? Great. This is so much better. And of course, we have to be coherent with the rental marketplace. So if we still use house as a comparable, but we want to be, you know, two, three, four hundred dollars a month below the, you know, the closest comparable house. Or if we can find townhouses in the market that rent that maybe a two, three or four bedroom usually is that's the maximum we see in townhouses. We'll use that as the comparable because we want families to show up and go, wow, this is really great. And the economics makes sense, both from a pricing and competition for other units, but also, you know, look, these families, they look at it, they go, I've got five bedrooms. I've got, you know, four earners, each earners paying X dollars per month per bedroom. 
I mean, that's literally when you go through the leasing conversations and the tours, that's the math they're doing. Wow. And I, and I hands down, we are the most affordable per bedroom rent any, in any market that we're in. Right. That's gotta be exciting. I mean, well, you did your homework at least. And, and that's very interesting. You know, I'm just taking, taking this all in. I have, I have, uh, <clears throat> so are you looking for investors to help out with some of these projects and, and explain a little bit to what that looks like? Yeah. Yeah, for, for sure. Um, so one of the things, you know, historically for our development operations, you know, we normally raise capital in the institutional capital world. So, you know, your, your big, you know, private equity funds, institutional investors, you know, the Carlisle groups of the world, you know, Warehouser, these would be some names that we've dealt with. Um, UTH is so differentiated and for all the positives that I've talked about, but it's the product types, not for every investor. Like they, some people, particularly institutional investors, they just can't get their arms around it. It's too different. It's too far on the end of the spectrum. And to me, that's fine, right? I don't want to compete in the middle of the road where all the institutions want to be because then you're just beating, you know, you're, beat, you're getting beat up and trying to beat everybody else up, right? right. We want to differentiate. So that has, over the last three years, really moved us into a different investor domain, which is where we've basically been doing a lot of, you know, development work. I don't mean like actual real estate, but developing our, you know, our, you know, digital platform, knowledge base, you know, how, how you know, you know, being out in the marketplace and social media, that kind of thing. And that's to basically get the word out about UTH as a differentiated new construction product, has this undersupply characteristics, good long-term stable tenant, you know, uh, capability. And so, yeah, we're, you know, typical investor would be, you know, high net worth, uh, family office, and we are always looking for new investors that that we can talk to and, and we can help them understand, you know, the, the way to invest in workforce housing, what the advantages are co compared to other product types. And we compete in the marketplace. So, you know, we have to do a great job of, you know, telling the story about UTH and why it would be a viable, um, you know, structure. So, you know, how that's working, I mean, I think the, you know, the syndication model is, I think, familiar with many investors, but, you know, we form a new single asset LLC for each new project. Uh, we would invite investors to come in and, and purchase membership shares, um, you know, typically we're working off of, you know, $100,000 uh, minimums uh, per investors, typically accredited. Uh, I will, though, share with you, actually, we just actually recently made uh, move to put uh, one of our projects out on a crowdfunding platform called Small Change. Um, and we're doing that because we want to, we think crowdfunding is the future of this business. Uh, we believe, you know, when millennial and Gen Z investors start to come into that point of their career and their lifestyle, when they're investing that crowdfunding, you know, online investing is, you know, already is existing uh, real estate sort of catching up in that domain, although it's, you know, relatively well developed for most of the big crowdfunding platforms. But we work for, with small change for a couple of reasons. One is they have a great ethic about our workforce housing model, right? That's part of their reason for investing and encouraging their investors to invest with us and others is they go, hey, look, it's a great project. It's in Los Angeles County in California. That's a great story, but also has the social benefit for families, right? We're helping families live a good life through the unit type and the attainability of the rents. And then the last great advantage of this, this will be, uh, in fact, our 1491 Atlantic project on the small change platform is our first reg CF raise. So we're doing what's called a side by side. So we have a 506C, um, you know, part of the capital raise for accredited investors. 
Um, and then we have a reg CF uh, part of the offer and side by side where, you know, non-accredited investors will get the opportunity to invest in these projects. And we're really excited about that because, you know, we recognize that, you know, lots of accredited investors out there in the world, but I, there's a lot of investors who like the social impact story, like I'm helping families, you know, it's a, it's a double bottom line. I can help these families and make money, right? Return on my investment. Uh, so we're super excited about that. And we're going to do a bunch more. Uh, Eve Picker and I are working on several projects that we're going to put up on her crowdfunding platform, small change in the next, you know, year or two, I expect probably, you know, three to five additional projects. Plus we're raising capital on 1491 Atlantic now. And then the last thing I'll finish with is actually we're really uh, enthusiastic about the, um, the, the tokenization space. So using cryptocurrency and blockchain structures to raise capital via, you know, secure uh, token offerings. Um, that is, that's like, we're just getting into that in the last few, few weeks. We've been tracking cryptocurrency and, and blockchain, you know, methodologies for raising capital on real estate projects for probably four years now. Um, but the early ICO market in the, in the, crypto space to raise capital on really any any asset um, was really wild west. I mean, it was overseas, you know, cryptocurrency platforms, you know, and I don't, you know, nothing wrong with that. It's just that wasn't our, you know, our method of raising capital. We want to have more transparent sanction structures. And so, you know, with the crowdfunding raise we're doing with small chains, those are all SEC sanctioned um, capital raises, whether it be Reg CF or, you know, in this case, 506C for, for uh, Atlantic. And so we're, we're in early discussions with uh, basically tokenization companies or tokenization platforms where we'll pair up our workforce housing capital raises with platforms that have, you know, basically SEC sanctioned, you know, say it's a 506C capital raise using tokens, right? And and then, you know, what that does is, you know, brings us into, you know, early use of, of you know, the technology cutting edge of, you know, blockchain investment or investments, you know, utilizing the blockchain technology would be the more correct way to say it. And it gives us access to overseas investors that would traditionally be much more difficult to access, right? So, via token offering, you know, we could have somebody who's based in Sweden who wants to, you know, buy $500 worth of tokens uh, can do that, right? And so it, it, you know, sort of has that Reg CF style of capital raise, although Reg CF and tokenization, to my knowledge, aren't paired together yet, although they will be eventually. Um, but it broadens the, you know, the nature of the investment community that we can, you know, reach out to. Um, and we haven't actually executed on a deal yet, just to, for, you know, full, full, you know, full disclosure. Um, but, you know, we worked with uh, the crowdfunding with small change for, you know, probably three years to finally have the right project at the right timing that could be a fit for the timing that is needed to raise money in these new domains. And we'll do the same thing with, you know, the STO structure um, and, you know, super excited about that. I mean, this is the future of investment. Um, you know, the future is, you know, blockchain, you know, based future. You know, we know like a lot of institutions starting to get into the crypto space. John Paul Jones, JP Morgan, Tim Draper, all those guys are, you know, yeah. making moves into, you know, into Bitcoin specifically. Um, but I think that just is a signal that, you know, the adoption of major institutions is starting, which means that the adoption of the, these, you know, real estate based crypto, you know, capital raise structures 
it, it's coming. I mean, it's already happening, but it's very, very early. Yeah, no doubt. So how do, how do the listeners go out and uh, find more information about uh, what you're doing and, and possibly get involved? Yeah, I appreciate that. So I would encourage people to go to our website. It's www.urbanpacific.com. And when you get there, do a few things. One, look at our investor education section. I've got tons and tons of articles and videos and podcasts really oriented around, you know, investor education, you know, you know, generally, but also specifically to the workforce housing space. Um, you know, uh, also when you're there, uh, there'll be a red button on any page that says sign up, click that button. That'll get you on our Saturday email list. And we put out a, uh, every Saturday uh, emails that are really oriented around, you know, market trends economic tracking data and the, you know, sharing the tools that we use of, you know, sort of our macro economic tracking that we do um, really weekly. You know, I have a, a practice weekly of reviewing several different data sources, websites, economists. Um, so, you know, a lot of that shows up in the Saturday e-blast. Like we want to, you know, help people sort of track the markets. I mean, we're doing it and we're just like sharing it with people um, out on these Saturday email blasts. And then uh, I would encourage people, it's not up yet, but it's going to be up in the next couple of weeks. We're actually going to, we're, we're adding a uh, project page for open investment uh, projects. Uh, in fact, it'll probably be up in a week or two. So Atlantic will be on there and then we've got, you know, two or three new projects that will be in the capital raising mode here very shortly. That's awesome. You know, Scott, you got a lot going on there. And listen, guys, you know, if you want to get involved and in you got some really nice investments that are going to be recession resilient and, you know, have some uh, rental income out there, you know, make sure that you contact Scott, you know, go to, you know, urbanpacific.com, check out his website, you know, and reach out to him for if you have more, any more questions and also in the show notes i'll make sure and put all his social media links his website on there and his all his background so you'll be able to see that on there as well so um, at the end of every show i was asking if you guys like it if you don't like it either way give me your feedback it's always appreciated um go out there if you like what you hear make sure you share it with at least one other person and you know find local first podcasts on just about any social media platform to search for look first podcast scott i really appreciate you coming on and sharing your story and what you're doing you're really doing some awesome stuff out there (laughs) hey rob it's so glad to be here i had a great time talking with you and appreciate all the really insightful questions thank you so much scott